So th this week we'll continue our series uh, about the, the parables of, of Jesus, which is what we'll do all fall. And uh, there's kind of an invitation for participation in this. Uh, downstairs you'll see at Potluck, uh, there's this big mural that, uh, that Nate and some others worked on. And um, it, it's, it's almost like graffiti and it, it just has the kingdom of God is, or the kingdom of heaven is like and it's got some opportunities for your imaginations to, to overflow and to flow out of some of these images and scenarios that Jesus gives us to try to, to, try to spark our lives and to, to shake us up. So today, uh, our passage is from Matthew 13, verses uh, 42 to 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then, in joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. The word of the Lord. Here's my parable. There once was a certain man named Percy Spencer. Like, this is really a guy. Percy was an engineer for a company contracted by the U.S. Defense Department during World War II. Percy was married to Louise, who probably was a good wife, but she wasn't too fond of some of Percy's habits, his diet. She didn't like his fondness for chocolate candy bars. You see, Percy really liked his candy bars. He'd keep one in his breast pocket at, at work, you know, just for snack time. And one day at work, Percy walked in front of one of his radar machines that he'd been developing for the military, and Percy noticed he'd been busted. There was no way he could hide this vice from Louise now, because the radar tube had melted his chocolate bar and ruined his shirt. You probably know where this is going. A few more experiments later, you know, an exploding egg here, some popcorn there, and, and you guessed it, we have the prototype for our modern microwave. This discovery gave rise to such beautiful things in our culture, Totina's pizza rolls and hungry man dinners. You can ask Rach the kind of like anti-microwave rhetoric I normally, you know, spit until like, a week ago, or a couple weeks ago, ours went out and I couldn't reheat my cup of coffee, and then I, I'm a microwave guy. Percy's invention, though, was far less of an invention and more of a discovery, you see. His and our lives, our whole like American culture, was forever changed by a silly and kind of random encounter with a melted milk chocolate bar in a ruined Oxford shirt. There are plenty of other stories about this happening. Just look at most of our really awesome inventions. Penicillin, they just left it out. They didn't clean it up and it grew mold. Velcro, Coca-Cola, this is what the internet's for. <laughs> but aside from an MIT education, Percy was no oaf. His invention just didn't fall into his lap. Percy noticed something that others had already noticed. 
that radar generates heat. But Percy discovered the microwave because he had the imagination, or at least the ability to begin to imagine a world where you could instantly reheat food without a heat source. While Percy discovered the microwave, the microwave revealed itself to Percy. These microwaves were there all along. Percy's fame and legacy relied on recognizing them and participating in their cultivation for the sake of something that's now normal to us. Our, my kids will never know what it's like to not have a microwave. I didn't know what it's like to not have a microwave. And so the kingdom of heaven, right there, present to us like a treasure in a field, waiting to be discovered, waiting to be found, waiting for someone to have eyes and ears. Jesus' kingdom parable says that once he found it, he hid it again and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought it. One parable, or one commentator puts it of this parable that joy is the engine of change. Has that been true in y'all's lives? You do some wild things in joy. Let's not pat this man on the back too much, though. The joy of discovery led him to risk everything and selling all. But as a card shark might tell you, this was more of an investment than a risk. What he stood to lose was minuscule compared to what he stood to gain. And so in joy, he sold it all away. At its core, isn't that always going to be how our dealings with God are? Our present and in the future? Coming to trust in him enough to have faith that he'll provide for us in abundance? Coming to us not just with empty hands, but also open hands to say, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's how we approach God. And then we come to know that despite what it looks like now, temporarily, you always stand to profit when you're dealing with God, our generous, gracious, giving God. So we open up our lives we open up our homes. We open up our bank accounts, our calendars, our futures, our kids' futures. It still seems like a risk. And oftentimes it's a risk we're unwilling to take, even though that's the call. So what is what in this parable? Uh, that's always a good, we need to backtrack. What is what? Like we always want to pin something and say A equals this, B equals that. Is God the man? Are we the anonymous man or women in this parable? What's the field? What's the treasure? Is it Jesus, the kingdom, our faith, salvation? Well, we might get something out of figuring these things out. At some point, it's all going to fall apart because doing that to the parables is like trying to nail jello to the wall, right? It's just going to wriggle and squirm and avoid us making those oversimplifications. One well, scholar, Amy Jill Levine, helps us read well at this point. She reminds us that the kingdom's not the pearl, it's not the merchant. The kingdom is what comes after the kingdom is like, like it's the whole thing. Like, that seems so basic, but we, we miss that. That's exactly why Jesus told parables in the first place. To craft these little worlds that are like ours, but different. So they challenge us towards repentance. 
changing our hearts and our minds and turning back to God. He tells parables not to clarify, but to complicate. To complicate our ideas about a complicated God who loves us enough to be near us. That, that relationship status is already it's complicated if he's going to be near us. Who loves us enough to be with us in Christ, Emmanuel, God, with us. But who's also so completely different, so completely other than us. Isaiah 55 reminds us, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways, nor your ways. The heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts, your thoughts. So we come to find that the kingdom of heaven is much more than a man, or a field, or a hidden treasure, but rather the whole world created by this short story. Where one person was so concerned with losing what they had, I like to think that the world of the parables kind of bleed together. One person was so concerned with losing what they had, they dug a hole and put it into the ground so no one could steal it from them. Do you remember that parable of the talents? Perhaps they forgot about it. Maybe they moved on. Maybe they died. So that treasure lay dormant in a field waiting to be found. Perhaps that's a little bit like what happens to the kingdom when we hold it too tight when we hold it too close, when it gets a little too safe or domesticated, when it becomes a little too much our kingdom and not God's kingdom. It's right at that point that the kingdom shows up to the least likely, the most unexpected, even the most unsuspecting. Some random dude roaming in a field. Like that's the Greek in there is like a guy. Right, Joe? <laughs> he, may, <laughs> he, he may or may not have stubbed his toe on a fortune, right? And it's here that I think about a 12-year-old boy. This is another true parable. Conrad Reed. Does anyone know that name, Conrad Reed? Is anyone a North Carolinian in here? No. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Conrad Reed was a 12-year-old boy headed down to a fishing hole on a Sunday morning in, 19, in 1799. He was playing hooky from his Cabarrus County church, right? Conrad Reed. <laughs> he was waiting for a tug on his line when he noticed this like weird gold, golden, like strange yellow rock sticking up. It was different than the slate or the other things that he noticed. Brought it home to his dad, John Reed. And for the next three years, it sat in their home as the doorstep, uh, as a doorstop to the Reed home. Finally, a few years later, they they brought it to a jeweler and had it assessed, and it was indeed gold—eighteen pounds worth of gold—and the first documented gold found in the whole U.S. The kingdom of heaven might show up outside our Sunday mornings outside the walls of the church. The kingdom might show up to a 12-year-old boy. The kingdom might get undiagnosed, underutilized, ignored. And there's also two strange details to that story. John Reed took that gold to a jeweler, the dad did, and they found out it was gold. The jeweler asked him to name his price. And Reed was a modest man. He thought a week's wages seemed about right, so he got $3.50 for it. 
the other strange detail, several years later, one of Reed's slaves, and that's an unfortunate use of his newfound treasure, one of his slaves found a 28-pound nugget, and he offered his slave a chance to break off a little piece of it and keep it for himself, to which the slave Peter refused because he didn't want to damage his fork trying to pry a piece off of the gold nugget. Each of these characters in the story seem stunted in their ability to conceive of the treasure they've stumbled upon. John Reed's failures in his valuation. He doesn't understand how much this thing is actually worth. He can't conceive of it. His slave Peters is in his unwillingness to risk what is or for what could be. I think I fall into these temptations a lot. <laughs> like John Reed, I'm unable, unwilling to value Christ and his kingdom how I should. I put like a $3.50 price tag on something that's worth immeasurably more. I'm unable to look at Christ's gifts to us, to his church, to my family, and see their worth. I lack imagination for how small things are really a big deal. How I react to a stranger or one of my kids. How I treat someone who disagrees with me or who I don't disagree with. That matters. Like our, How our lives are is how we spend each and every one of our days, these moments, these little sneaky things that, that we don't think matter. They all matter. They're like little cross stitches in this big quilt that if, if we're doing it right, these little cross stitches are going to wind up showing us this picture of Christ-likeness. These small moments of fidelity and love and grace that we're hoping to string together like a strand of pearls. But I lack creativity for where God is working. I drift back into old habits, complacency, comfort. I, I, I'm, I, I don't want to be challenged to where Jesus is going because I don't want to follow him into hard places or strange people. <laughs> I lack anticipation for this kingdom to be coming and for the Holy Spirit to use each and every interaction I have with someone to witness to this coming kingdom, to tell them about God, to show them Christ, to loop them into what the Holy Spirit's doing. Or like Peter in this story, I lack the boldness to take a risk for the sake of God's kingdom. I operate out of fear rather than joy, rather than abundance, rather than peace. I'm unwilling to consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom sake I've lost all things. I don't consider their garbage that I might gain Christ. I'm too concerned with keeping what I've earned than stepping into the life, the love, the inheritance that Christ has made for me. And I'm scared. <laughs> To be interrogated by this question, Diedrich Bonhoeffer has this question. He says, what do, what do I really believe? I mean, believe in such a way that my life depends on it. I'm scared of that question. I don't know about you guys. I'm scared I'm either going to come up with an answer that is nothing or is something other than Christ. So I don't ask that question very often. 
So back to the parable. We look at this parable, not, not just the characters that we try to match up, but we look at the whole thing, and we look at the verbs. Found, hid, goes, sells, buys. Rick Lisher instructs, the kingdom is not one thing at all, but a verb. It can be entered into only by the approximation of these five verbs. So it's only when you enter into a life of God, allowing him to reveal himself to us, finding delight and anticipation in the mystery and hiddenness of God's grace, gaining urgency and momentum to act, and then being willing to lose everything we have in order to step into the riches of the Father. That's where the kingdom is. That's what it's like. It's like a people willing to be continually graced and surprised as we give ourselves, as we give our lives to others for the sake of the gospel. So now we turn to the second parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. The again gives away that this is this is a clue that this is related, not too far away from the other parable. But then again, they're a little different. They give us a slightly different angle at what God's up to here, at what Jesus is telling us about this kingdom. Whereas the first story talks about a man, a certain, not a certain man, not a particularly interesting man, just a man. The second parable talks about a merchant. Someone with a job, with a very particular set of skills, someone with a mission. A merchant, by the way, isn't a particularly good thing in that culture. You know, think um, a speculator. Think someone trying to get rich quick. Like, think less like house. Uh, well, what's a what's a show on HGTV or whatever? Like less property brothers and more like like a guy like you know, roving around a gentrifying neighborhood looking to flip houses, like kind of threatening, kind of, kind of not, not a good guy. A merchant's job is to buy low and sell high. Also, don't miss another slightly shady detail of this <laughs> parable, this like small resonance in Matthew's gospel, that the, the, the pearl, the, the actual treasure is not it's not kosher. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a good thing for that Jewish culture. So we have, in this parable, a shyster finding an unkosher treasure, born from shellfish and off limits to the Jews. Then in our second parable, our merchant finds some, quote, merchandise. But it's not quite what he expected. Rather than a string of pearls, he found one. But like the first parable, the kingdom is not the seeker or the prize, but it's the finding, it's the surprise, it's the risk born from joy. In the first parable, the man's whole identity changes. He goes from being a rambler to being a rich man. He's found a whole new life he didn't even know he was looking for. You've met people like that before, right? In the second, our merchant is now exclusively a pearl guy. <laughs> He's liquidated his stock 
and put all his eggs in one basket, the pearl of great price. He's found exactly what he's looking for, but paradoxically, it's much more and much less than he anticipated. And it's this way with the kingdom. It's this way with the king. You see, Jesus was also that treasure hidden in the field, being found by those who didn't know they were even looking. Read these gospel accounts. Jesus is found by these people, and then he asks only for everything. Think about his encounter with a rich young ruler. If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But the, but the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. But Jesus also came to Israel, those who were looking, were expecting, were hungering and thirsting for God to intervene, for their Messiah to come and save them, to come to them. So he came. So he came. Perhaps not how they wanted him to come. To the religious, he came, but not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. To revolutionaries, he came, not as a conquering king, but as a prince of peace. This Jesus, this parable of God and his words and his person, showed us the math of the kingdom. That costly grace, our all for God's all. Think about that deal. Our all for God's all, which nets us eternal life. Our sin, even our best ambitions in exchange for God's grace and his will. Our past, our present, and our future for Alpha and Omega, for God's faithful promises, Christ's fulfillment, and a spirit-empowered hope for new creation. Jesus came as the prototype of one who seeks first and foremost the kingdom of God and God's righteousness and then had things added unto that. Christ came and he showed us the joy of the kingdom, whether it was in the delight he had, the joy of bringing about his kingdom in and through outcasts, through children, through the poor, through quote-unquote sinners, and by that I mean the people who knew they were sinners or the people who were known as sinners. Their reputation was, on, was built on the fact that they didn't have what it took. Or his joy and persecution, Jesus' joy and suffering and sacrifice for our salvation. The author of Hebrews calls us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He endured the cross ignoring the shame for the sake of the joy that was laid out in front of him, he sat down at the right hand of God's throne. In Luke 10 also shows Jesus brimming with joy as he commissions his disciples, his, those apprentices around him. It says, Jesus overflowed with joy from the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and shown them to babies. Indeed, Father, this brings you happiness. Happy are those that see what I see. That's my prayer for us. Happy are those who see what he sees. 
So Jesus looks and sounds a lot like a certain man in a treasure story here. Seeing something of immense value that no one else did and giving his everything to secure it for himself. So these parables call to us. They shake us up. They force us to see the kingdom as an all-encompassing deal. One that requires us to go, to sell, to buy. You can't shake kind of that echo of Isaiah 55's return from exile and the offer for the feast. All of you who are thirsty, come to the water. Whoever has no money, come buy food and eat. Without money, at no cost, buy wine and milk. Come, let us come and buy without money, but with everything we have and are. Let us risk with joy our lives and our futures by putting them in the hands of our Lord, the only place that they're safe. Let us be renewed in our desire to pray the Wesley prayer. I am no longer my own, but yours. And Lord, let us be joyful in this transaction for the surpassing value of knowing Christ, for the chance to get a new identity in him and to participate in the kingdom as people of renewal, anticipating the renewal of all creation. Amen. You guys pray with me. Father, I thank you for stories like this that help us enter into the world of the kingdom, a world of risk, a world of joy, a world of surprise and treasure. Lord, help us expect the right things. Help us have our finger on the trigger of, of offering ourselves up don't, don't let us sit around and wait and run our cost analyses on if it's worth following you and worth getting involved with your life because you've, in Christ, gotten involved with our lives. God, we thank you for that. Give us boldness. Give us endurance. Give us eyes and ears. Give us imaginations. Give us the desire to know you and to live into your kingdom. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.